Blog Talk Radio. Why, hello, and welcome to Cinephiles Radio. I'm your host, Steve Peace. I thank you so much for joining us today. We have the wonderful Brad Rushing today, cinematographer, visual artist. He's worked with some of the best people out there, from Mariah Carey to Britney Spears. So we're looking forward to talking to him about his experience, where he came from, and what are his uh, what are his influences. Now, before we begin, I want, I want to give a big shout-out and a thank you to Blog Talk Radio. You know, we were having technical difficulties for quite a while, and they fixed the issue. Now, I'm not, getting, I'm not getting paid by them, but I really appreciate them fixing the issue and being stand-up people. I've worked with them for a very long time, and this is the only platform that really has its own studio as well as distribution. So if you go to iTunes, just type in Cinema Files, and you'll see the show. It links up almost within five minutes of its production. So I really appreciate them a great deal. I don't want to leave this platform. I love it. So how are you all doing? We're still in the midst of the pandemic, right? We have the Omicron variant. Are you guys going out and partying? You guys having fun? You guys watching movies? You guys obviously watch Spider-Man because it's like the, what, the number six movie of all time. I want to talk to you. Give me a call at 563-999-3418. I want to, I want to hear what your opinions are, maybe on the film or perhaps on the pandemic and, and how you're handling it. Everybody handles it different. Now, I hope you listened to the last episode with Sean Piccinino. Man, that was a cluster. <laughs> i got to tell you. You know, first of all, I had to shake off some old nerves. I haven't done the show in maybe a year. I took, I took some, some time off for some, you know, mental health re- rejuvenation. You know, I love the show, but, you know, it's, I, I do a lot of things. And sometimes... When your body and your brain are telling you, hey, take a break, you need to take a break. And if you don't listen to yourself, well, your body and your brain will make you listen. So I, I've never wanted to be in that situation. And quite honestly, I've been in that situation. You know, in my college years, like, you know, you just push, 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 push. And uh, sometimes it could have dire effects. I remember I was making a turn on the uh, Ventura Freeway, excuse me, the, the 5 Freeway. And I literally lost consciousness between one exit to the next. I was looking at the sun and I fell asleep. And I woke up at the next turn as I was making a turn. I was like, oh my, God. you know, I was really shocked by that, that experience. And I was, I don't know, like 17 years old. And never again, I should have just pulled over and, and took a nap. 
but I wasn't listening to anybody but myself. You know, you know how it is to be young and dumb. You don't really listen a lot of times. So if you're having any issues, especially right after the New Year's right now, if you're having any issues or things are extremely stressful, it's not selfish at all to take time out for yourself. Take time out for yourself. You know, be alone. Be with your cats. Be with your dog. Do something for yourself. How was your New Year's? I like to say that 2022 is going to be a better year than 2021 or 2020. I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I mean, they're not horrible. I mean, we live in America and to a certain extent at the height of, of uh, technology and to a certain extent intelligence. I mean, more people are reading now than ever. So that's nice. I went to the market the other day and there was this person right next to me and she was coughing into her hand and she wasn't wearing a mask. And then she started reaching for the produce. <laughs> I'm telling you, I have, during this entire thing, I have never been more flabbergasted and disgusted in my entire life. Like, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for considering others at this moment. I really appreciate it. No, 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 hold on. It's all about you. I see that. It's all about you. No, don't take my health into consideration. By all means, cough into your hands. I have no idea what you have. Don't wear a mask by any means, even though there's a mask mandate inside the market. And touch my celery. <laughs> I mean, you can wear a mask for at least like three minutes. You know, I know everybody has their own opinion on masks and what have you. You know, I respect that to a certain extent. I really don't, but you know what I mean. Everybody should be wearing a mask. Let's get this thing over with. Like to me, it's very much very similar to the uh, the age generation, which is, which is what I grew up with. It's like wear a condom, and people did, and AIDS definitely dissipated. And then we got the triple cocktail, and uh, things started changing. So right now, what people need to do is, you know, keep a certain distance, go out there and live your life, wear a mask. Obviously, don't wear a mask when you're eating or drinking, but like, we can live our lives, we can enjoy our lives. We can't live in fear in all existence. I don't think anybody in the universe wants you to do that. I mean, you can argue that that's that's not true, but I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Well, we're still waiting for Brad Rushing to get here. In the meantime, I'm gonna give him a little text and remind him that we're on. There you go. Fancy technology, right? There you go. 
I'm looking forward to talking to Brad Rushing because the, the visual medium is, is an incredible process. You know, you wouldn't have movies like, well, any Western, if you want to talk about, like True Grit, without a great cinematographer. And you have, you know, really great filmmakers like the, you know, like the Coen brothers who really look forward to using certain cinematographers because they want a certain view. Have you ever had the pleasure of watching Miller's Crossing? It, it's beautifully shot. Now, they could have the vision, but you need somebody to incorporate that vision. That's incredibly important. And when you watch True Grid, True Grid is a very isolated film where you have very close-up shots, very close-up characters, but you absolutely need somebody to take those shots into their imagination and bring it to life. Now, of course, they could hold the camera themselves, of course. There's a lot of directors that do that. Like Soderbergh. Soderbergh holds the camera all the time. There's a lot of directors like that. And I don't mind doing that myself when I direct my own films. I hold my own camera. But I do like having somebody with me who has a different vision, who sees different things, sees different angles. If we take three different angles of one shot... It comes out wonderfully. Opposed to like a straight on shot, you know what I mean? Like you're just looking right at their nose, right at their eyes, right at their face. It's a little awkward, right? (laughs) It's a little basic. What are your favorite like cinematography films? Give us a call. 563-999-3418. 563-999-3418. Give me a call. I'll put you on. I want to listen to you. I want to hear what you have to say about your, your favorite films on cinematography. I don't know which ones are mine. I think Dance with Wolves definitely blew me away with cinematography. Hmm. You know, I think Cloud Atlas is something that I, I definitely don't want to uh, push away from me. It was really a great film as well as a really awesome concept, but I think very difficult to visualize. And they made it happen. Or at least the DP or the cinematographer made it happen. That's really, really difficult. I also want to know from, from Brad Rushing, like, what does it take? What does it take for somebody to want to spend 18 hours with you and also share every deep thought they have about their film and putting it in your hands? That's a, that's a very hard concept to swallow, right? That's like, you know, co-writing with somebody and hoping to God they get it right. Or hoping to God that it gels.
you guys enjoy Spider-Man? I love that film. I, I know Spider-Man's not known for its cinematography. <laughs> it's known, but you know, when you look at the action of Spider-Man, it's shot extremely well. Extremely well. And a lot of us know how bad action could be shot because we've seen like the, the Bourne Identity or the Bourne films where the first movie was incredibly well done. The first film had incredible action that you can see very clearly. And in the second film, it was pushed in so close you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see a darn thing. It was pushed in so much, I mean, it looked like a blur. And I gotta be honest with you, when you watch the first film, it's very impressive. Visually, it's very impressive. Like when you look at John Wick, it's very impressive. That's cinematography. That's action within visuals. So that's incredibly impressive. So these are the questions we want to add, Brad Rush. And you look, how do you get to that point? How do you how do you see yourself as a cinematographer, as a DP, as a photographer? How do you how do you see yourself within that mix? Oh, I see you, Brad. I'll get you on in a second. All right, so let's get Brad in here. Let's talk to him about his, his life. Let's give him a little clap here. Hey, Brad. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. good, good. So happy to have you on. Thank you very much. So we don't we don't necessarily know each other, but we know the same people. It seems. Well, you know anybody who it, Sean Piccinino gives the seal of approval to has got to be <laughs> pretty top drawer. He's a discriminating fellow, but also a super super nice, talented Renaissance man, and uh, you know I very highly respect him. We, we've he and I have known each other for eighteen years. So, uh, oh my goodness, I, that's fantastic! Yeah, so I, I doubt you'd be uh, you'd know that person that long if they didn't like you somehow. <laughs> nah, that's true. I guess that's true. So you you have the advantage on me. I'm still, I guess I'm still going through the probationary period. <laughs> well, you doing a film with somebody, you 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 share, and you you express something that's very very intimate. So it's it's very it's a yeah. different relationship. You know what I mean? It's because they trust yeah. you. They trust your vision. But I want to talk more about that a little bit later on. So you were born in Texas, right? Yep. Yep, I sure was. I was born in Houston, Texas. Yeah, Houston, Texas, right? Opposed to like Dallas or, or Amarillo, which is known as the armpit of Texas. Right. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I, I've, been... I've never been, I've never been to Amarillo, but um, I've had family in Dallas. So I've been to Dallas right. many times. Yeah. Oh, Dallas is beautiful. I, re- I remember when, when they shut down a lot of the restaurants in L.A., back maybe like in the late 80s, early 90s, because they, you know, they right. weren't having a big boom. A lot of those chefs went to Texas because they were paying gigantic oh, amount. Yeah, they're paying gigantic amount of money because they're, gi- they're a very rich state. Uh, so they were yeah. paying gigantic amount of money to have those chefs out there. I mean, some of the best Japanese sushi chefs were out there in Texas. Fascinating. Well, that's something something new that I learned today. <laughs> so you're 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 born in Houston, Texas. 
and you're, you're going through the mix. What what inspired you to go into like a visual spectrum of, of your of your reality? What, what brought you to that as an artist? Well, you know, I wish I could tell you there was some kind of magic moment or epiphany, but the the reality is, is I've just I've always lived in that space my entire life, even when I was, you know, a tiny little kid. One of my favorite things to do was draw pictures, and and I just always loved art, even you know all through school, and eventually went to a fine arts high school. And while I was there, because I was an artist, a friend of mine in the film department came around one day looking for uh, an art major to draw cells for an animated project, and I was always game for something new, so I said, yeah, I'll do it, and. Uh, it was just one of those amazing moments when, you know, I first saw my my work in motion and I thought, oh, my gosh. And so I started, you know, doing a little bit of film. And then by the time I got to college, I did a double major and uh, just never looked back. And uh, nice. I, I just, you know, doing creative stuff is just kind of – it's just kind of what I do. I also, you know, work with music. I like to write. And well, let's all, get to me. Let's get to that a little bit later yeah, on, because yeah. I want to. I definitely want to talk to the people that you that you worked with, like Britney Spears. I mean, that's that's incredibly, uh, you know, ambitious. But let's go. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit to like maybe your family. Was your family involved okay. with any kind of art? Um, every single person in my immediate family has or had artistic aptitudes. I mean, my dad. Hmm was a talented uh, artist, my mother, my brother and sister, but none of them pursued it vocationally. You know, they were hobbyists and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even more widely, my grandfather, I know, played played musical instruments. My uncle plays musical instruments. So it's, you know, potentially in the DNA. I don't know. It, that is strange that it, it almost seems genetic. When I When I look at my family as well, you know, majority of them are, are artists. I mean, some of them are business people. I mean, a lot of them are right. business people, but right. it seems to be somehow like an influence through genetics or yeah. somehow just stuck in your DNA. Well, right. I mean, it's maybe, I, I don't know, but, I, you know, it's also possible that just because they were artistic, that was, you know, an interest they passed along and, you know, handed me crayons and papers and said, have fun, whereas somebody else handed their kid a football. Right. Well, that's a little surprising to me, considering that you came from Texas, that you weren't pushed in the like sports realm. Well, you know, my I had really no interest. In fact, it's it's just super embarrassing how little I know. And um, my mother, my mother's from Calgary, Alberta, so there's that. And mm. um, you know, my my dad grew up uh, with a, a doctor for a father who was a very intellectual fellow and his mom. Oh, and very pragmatic. Yeah, so, you know, I guess there, in in my immediate family line, there's not been a lot of, you know, rah-rah for sports. My brother and sister kind of get into it now, but when we were little, I don't remember that at all. And it's just, I don't know, it's just nothing that I, I, to this day, I really don't get what the excitement is about. There's this great... um, episode of IT crowd where uh Moss is watching a football game and 
a, a mm. British football game, and he's just saying, right. well, the man's running up the field. He's got the ball. He kicked it. <laughs> now the other guy's got it. And I'm like, that's kind of how I feel. It's like, okay. And so what? <laughs> Well, I, I think, right, you know, I love sports, but, you know, I, I, I can't name any person. Uh, I know the rules, but I can't name any – I've never been – other than Kobe Bryant. It's very difficult for me right. to, like, name any names or, or get into those concepts. Right. Um, right. And also, my, my body was never made, made for those kinds of, you know, sports and what have you. So you, you went into the visual medium, you know, quite, quite early in your life. How did, you, how did your family – feel before we talk about your career how did your family feel about you pursuing this part of your life do you mean like as a little kid or in school or at what point right right when you knew what you wanted to be right when you knew that you right when you started conceptualizing the idea of of the the visual medium well i won't bore you with the details but i've always known what i wanted to do that doesn't mean it's always been the same thing. There's been evolution. But it's funny when I talk to people who say they don't know what they want to do because ever since I was a tiny little kid, I always had a vision of I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this. And, um, right. you know, I think while I was studying art, I had a sense that that might be what I want to do. And I remember, you know, shortly out of, college or high, actually out of high school you know hmm. right as I was beginning college I kind of you know at the time I was doing art I was doing a little bit of film and I was doing music and I just kind of said okay whichever one pays first that's what I'll go with and, right. um, and then as I got into college I remember because I was a double major I actually was into a fifth year because um, I was taking so many classes I really and I was working too so but I was in, into my fifth year, and a friend of mine called me up, and he said, um, hey, there's this, there's this home shopping channel that's looking for camera operators, and they're you know, paying this exorbitant rate of $20,000 a year. And wow. you know, at the time, that sounded wonderful to me, and I was like, yeah, right. let's do it. And, and, and I didn't graduate. I was off to the races. Um, and you know, my parents, at every step, they've been just – brilliantly encouraging, you know, from when I was a little kid to when I went to go to art school to when I wanted to be an art slash film major to, you know, choosing it as a career. And even when I, you know, I just spontaneously said, hey, I'm moving to L.A. And I thought they were going to try and talk me out of it. And they said, that's wonderful. We're so happy for you. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I, I guess I'm committed now. <laughs> well, the, the fact that but, I think uh, the fact that you were so, you know, um, well, I would use the word committed committed to what you want to do. You knew yourself, you, you knew your family, you knew what you wanted to do. That's right. pretty persuasive to parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, I had an aptitude and I had a passion and they encouraged that for all of us. I mean, they were very, very devoted parents. And honestly, it wasn't until after they passed away that I, and that, you know, I was in my fifties that I even really had a sense of how rare my parents were. I was right. talking to a friend just the other day who also had good parents, and we're both saying, yeah, you know, we just kind of assumed everybody had great parents. I mean, we, we you know, you hear about the, the families that have problems, but we just kind of assumed they were in the minority. And then when I started talking to people about how much I miss my parents and why, 
You know, right. I, there were so many people with mixed feelings or bad feelings. I thought, oh, my God, I really won the lottery with those folks. Right. Well, you were a child. You were a child in the 70s. So we remember the 70s. I mean, the parents were extraordinarily uh, complex. And, uh, yeah. you know, you get into the 90s and then you, you look at uh, other people's parents and you realize that most of them are divorced. Most kids are really right. upset. You know what I mean? Everybody's kind of dysfunctional. <laughs> And then you look back at your family yeah. and like, wow, I hit the jackpot. Yeah. Well, you know, divorce was definitely, at least as far as people talking about it, the exception. You know, that, that is one of the, the realities of that generation is that there was a lot of things that people weren't quite so open about as they are today. So there may have been more divorce than I was aware of, but it did right. seem to be the exception. And um you know, I, right. all, all the people who are my friends, regardless of what background they came from, seem to have, you know, made something of themselves and done well and, and had good right. lives. And, you know, I'm very happy for them. Absolutely. Well, I don't think I don't think that makes kind of a staple on, on who you are as a human being. Like a majority of my friends, even now, their parents were divorced and, and remarried and what right. have you. I don't think that really make, creates who you are. But when you look at the family structure and what have you, both my parents were immigrants to the country, so it was kind of like more of the thing, okay. like more of an more of the Irish thing of like, you know, you're going to die with me, <laughs> one way or the other, you know. So they, right, they right, so they, right. you know, right. So they forced to make it work, and you 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 kind of get that understanding of like maybe Victorian, you know, 17th century, you know, New York, where people really tried to make it work. That's not necessarily a good thing, but in my case, it was it yeah. was a good thing, yeah. Yeah, I've, 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 you know, I've heard that those conversations, and I've seen that where people say, you know, yeah, we could, we could try and stay together, but it's, it's going to be a bad situation, right? And you know, so it's better to, either way, it's going to be a bad situation, and that's going to be worse. So, right. You know, I, I understand and respect the, the idea of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you know for a fact that your life is better apart, then you know you're self-aware. And, you know, it's kudos to you for understanding yourself and understanding your family. Now, I, I understand that you, you really started on, like, kind of your filmography in 1989. Am I right? Yeah, well, pretty much. I mean, I started working – I would say I started working in the entertainment industry in 87, and that's when I grabbed that job. Although, you know, like I said, it was a broadcast job. and uh, Right. Then 88, I did my first film work, but my first meaningful credits were, were 89-ish, 90, you know, hmm. pushing in into the early 90s. That's when I really, you know, started building up some, some momentum. And you, you started off with, with short films, just like everybody else, right? You started off with short films. Like, you know, um, you, well, you I... wouldn't. What? Well, well, I mean, when I was, when I was in, in Houston, I... You know, I was working as a camera assistant and a camera operator, and I worked on some pretty big movies. I worked on RoboCop 2. I day-played. I wasn't on the wow. regular crew, but I day-played on RoboCop 2. I day-played on I Come in Peace with Dolph Lundgren. Um, nice. I worked on some – yeah, I worked on some homegrown features, some television shows. I'm sorry, not television shows, commercials. And uh, mm -hmm. and I just had – you know, I had this sense that as much as I – loved Houston and I loved my parents and my friends that it was a limited market. And I, I could tell that it was going to take a tremendous amount of sacrifice and effort and, 
And I thought, if I'm going to put all that into it, I want to go where the sky's the limit, you know, not where there's right. this little bitty fish pond. I want to go to the big ocean. And so I went to Los Angeles very naively thinking that I would be welcomed with open arms and there would be an abundance <laughs> of opportunities. And I was, I was grossly mistaken, but I was also right. persistent. And, you know, for the first few years, you know, I was doing temp work or whatever I could find, not even film work, just working, you know, through a temporary agency. And, right. um, and I would do whatever I could find. And a lot of that was just shooting college films. I mean, fortunately, LA had a lot of film schools and people would, you know, do ads looking for cinematographer to shoot student right. film. And, you know, I did a lot of that. And I, and I had my friends out there and we're like, hey, we're all going to be filmmakers together and, you know, one for all and all for one. And I think, you know, there's a lot of times in my career that there were these inflection points where I had a, an epiphany and everything changed. And the first one was around that time. And I thought, I thought, my God, if, if I want to make a living with this, you know, I'm hanging out with all my buddies and they're great. But if right. I want to make a living, I need to be working with the people who do this for a living, <laughs> not the, right. not right. a bunch of dreamers. Right. And so that's that's when it really started to change, and I started hustling. And I, some, my first breaks really were working for Roger Corman's Concord New Horizons, and and now, you know I was a paid paid professional DP, and I met friends there who I know to this day. In fact, Brett Headland, who is the editor on these films I've been doing with Sean, I met him at Concord back in the day. Well, I want to talk to you about Roger Corman because I'm—I've always been a gigantic fan sure. of Roger Corman. Sure. Um, you know, what, what camera would you have used? Like, let's say, like maybe 1992. I, I believe the Sony SR1 came out in what 94, 95. Well, we we were shooting film. We weren't shooting hmm. video. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all my professional work pre. 2006, seven was film, mostly 35, and uh, it was only it was like my first digital movie was with the Sony uh, Sony F F something F 700 F. Anyway, it's the one that they shot uh, the Star Wars prequels on. The, the two well, I think that's the F 700. Yeah, I think that's the F 700. Maybe I don't remember, but that was the one. That was my first digital camera, and that, but that was 2006, 2007. I mean, I shot, you know, some crazy stuff just on NTSC cameras, but that wasn't my professional work. Right. My professional work was right. all film. So all the right. Roger Corman stuff, most of it was 35. I think we did a TV series that was 16 millimeter over there, hmm. but you know, 35 would have been like Airy 35 BL cameras, right? Wow, sixteen millimeter. <laughs> that, that's intense. Yeah, yeah. My last, what, the last movie I shot on sixteen millimeter was was uh, about two thousand eight, and it came out in two thousand eleven. It was co- called Cook County, and that was a fun movie. Oh, that's a great title. Yeah, that's a great title. Yeah, it's a so, movie about about a family that is has struggles with meth. I mean, some of them are addicted, some of them are selling it. It's a it's a very dark and dramatic movie, and it is one of the ones that I am most proud of because it's a very powerful movie. It stars Anson Mount, who's currently Captain oh, yeah. Pike for Star Trek, and yeah. uh, he's a major Berkeley, who's been yeah, 
and Xander Berkeley, who's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah, I, I love Anson as Captain Pike. I've always been fascinated by Jeffrey yeah. Hunter's Pike and that era. And, you know, regardless I'm of with the fact you. that Anson's my friend, he, he's yeah. just, he just owns that character in a way that no, I'm he with honors. You. Yeah. Yeah, they, they've made a new show based on, I don't know if you know this, but they made, they, they're making yeah, a new show based on. I'm ready. Yeah, oh my God, I cannot wait for that show to come out. Yep, yep. It looks like I, a recreation. I love what they what? did. I love what they did in in Discovery with 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 Pike. I mean, I just, just yes. brilliant. Yes. Well, you know, you know, I've known Doug Jones for quite a long time, and I I really love his performances oh, nice. on that show, and I really love the show a great deal, and I love you know Picard, I really do. But going back to yeah. the epicenter. Going back to ground zero of where it all came from. Right. That's really that's really appealing. That's really appealing to me. You mean the the original show? The original Star Trek, yes. The original show. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, a little updated. Let's let's not make it uh, you know as as misogynistic as it was back then. But uh, right. and it was right. still a, it was still a brilliant show because a lot of it was based on like quantum mechanics and and racism right. and right. and bigotry right. and it was it was very advanced right. for its time. Well, I mean, you know, I would say this. I've lived long enough that that I understand that so much of things are about context, and it's very easy for us to look back and say that the original series was misogynistic or to say that Song of the South was racist or to say that, (laughs) you know, there's all kinds of problems with, with friends. Right. But, you know, they're of their time, and in those moments, they were they were revolutionary. I mean, it's like yes, in 2022 there are sexist aspects in Star Trek, and it, w- yeah. it could be made, it could be argued that objectively they were sexist then. But in terms right. of everybody's mindset back then, the fact that you had you know Uhura taking command, that you had you know in the pilot uh, Majel Barrett as number 1 the, did you know, you know that was the first ever had... mixed kiss on TV was between Uhura and, and yes. Captain Kirk yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, I mean, pretty but, incredible so they broke you know look they they weren't perfect they had a ways to go but but they broke ground and i yeah. i don't think we can dismiss that i think because i think you know progress towards a better world happens in fits and starts we don't just boom suddenly arrive there and i I think it's a mistake to just out of hand dismiss that progress just because it didn't land in the perfect place. Because you know what, right. 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on 2022 and go, oh, man, you know what a bunch of lunkheads we were because of this, that, and the other thing that we're not aware of at the moment. You know, Right. Well, that's my problem. That's my problem with newer generations. I mean, we're always going to have a problem with new generations. And there's a scroll in China that says kids these days – they don't listen to parents. Kids these days, listen to music that's way too loud. Kids these days, kids these days. It was 546 B.C. Yeah. So, it's you know, adults are always going to, like, not like kids. And, but if I'm talking about this generation right now, what I'm not a gigantic fan of is people just jumping to conclusions and, and hating yeah. something. Like, going, like, hey, Gone with the Wind was incredibly racist. Like, wait, hold your horses. I hold your horse. Like I, I get what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying, but you don't burn books for that very reason, or else you know we're right. going back to like you know Huckleberry Finn. We're going back to why we well, I mean, why they try to burn that in 1976. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Well, I mean, my my point of view is is this is like is like I I have no problem with the current generation, and I mean, here's the thing: is we have perspective, and they don't have perspective. And in the '70s, we didn't have perspective, and our parents had perspective, but those perspectives come from those those limited contexts. And look, I'm I'm all for them challenging us, you know, and then and then it's incumbent on us to say yes. You have a point, but understand that context changes. I mean, it's it's about dialogue, and I, some of the younger generation, because I have friends and mentees who are, you know, in their twenties, and there's some brilliant, amazing, hardworking people. And you know, I look back on my generation, and there were plenty of small-minded people with no imagination who just wanted to judge and 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 have an opinion because it was cool to have an opinion, and you know, right. same kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, right. I think if you talk to the thoughtful ones, they understand that if you make the point of, of hey, in 1994, the way our generation was, friends just didn't land as, you know, the way we look at it in 2022. And I have also evolved to the point that I totally see their point. I totally right. get what they're saying, you know, right. and but – you know, I, I still enjoy it. It's not like I'm sitting there hating on people, but and 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 I cringe at the bits that everybody else cringes at. But there's enough, you know, inside jokes for our generation that I don't want to throw it away. Right. So, Without um, a doubt. You know, it's it's again. I I just try to have charitable views because I understand that. I mean, look, everybody sees it from their point of view, and it doesn't mean that they're wrong or I'm wrong. I mean, I think it's really just about understanding again context. And the fact that somebody who's 20 has a lot less years of, of being able to see a pattern than somebody who's 57. Well, the old adage is there are no truths, just perceptions. Yes. Let me ask you, you know, I you moved that, on 100%. to right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because when people say, um, you know, you know, you know, it's common sense. There's no such thing as common sense. There's mutual sense, but I've never known anything as common. Common sense is, is one of those terms that really makes me bristle because typically when people say that, they're, they're making an argument that defies logic and they're coming from a place of being uninformed. You know, so many times I would hear people say, you know, those college folks, they're so smart, but they don't have common sense. And it was really because they were, you know, taking an enlightened point of view that these other people who were saying those those things and invoking that common sense, you know, they right. didn't have the insights to understand the finer points of the argument, and so they were just going off their gut or what somebody told them. And so, yeah, I that's that's a, that's definitely a a button for me when somebody says common sense because right, yeah, I, like, what the hell does that mean? Who gets to define common sense? Right. You know, it's not objective; it's an opinion. <laughs> Right, exactly. I've, I've been a teacher for 31 years, so I, you know I, I, I come up with new generations every single every single time. So to not be able to adapt to a newer generation to me is a big faux pas. Not being able to understand where they're coming from, not be able to understand communication. I, I remember years ago I spoke to a parent and I'm like, you know, do, you know, do you have a TikTok? She goes, What do I look like? I'm 12. Yeah. No, everybody has a TikTok. You know, and if you ask now about yeah. like a or Instagram, excuse me, Instagram. And now when you ask people about TikTok, they're like, TikTok, what do I look like? I'm 12. It's like, listen, these are just ways of communicating. And when I look at TikTok, yeah. I see like, 
you know, movie reviews, uh, ways of making films, right. you know, cat right. video. I mean, these yeah. things are like really sh- like three minutes short films. And now when you look at YouTube, right. they're literally translating over those short films onto YouTube. So, you know, yeah. and by the way, you know, I love this one content creator on, 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 um, on TikTok. She makes her own films. And then she explains to you what she did. And I'm like, this is like a, a UCLA film class, like where I went. Like, yeah. literally. That's it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I want to go to Roger Corman because Roger Corman is an, an incredible creator. Sure. So you, so, you, so you were involved in one of his creative processes, one of his schools, right? Well, so, I mean, I was involved at the company. I wasn't okay. really – I didn't answer to him – any any more than to the extent that he was the you know the head of the company we i only had one interaction with him ever and i remember it was it was shortly after they had done carnosaur which was their hack knockoff of jurassic park <laughs> and i believe the movie was called haunted sea and right. um the director was this fellow named john beekler who was a special effects guy and he had taken the carnosaur suit, which is, you know, man in rubber suit, and he had built right. a different head. So basically saved Roger a ton of money. I mean, that was, that was Roger's thing, is how, how little can we spend to make this happen? And we were on set. It was just me and John and Roger. And Roger is looking at it, and he's just going, oh, my, oh, that's wonderful, in his deep, mellifluous <laughs> voice. And... You just had to love him. I mean, he just had that, like, he had so much charisma, and you just, even though in my eyes it was super cheap and crappy, I was so happy he was happy, you know? Right. Um, I, yeah, and one of their philosophies I'll never forget was, because I, you know, one of my favorite monsters is Alien. And to me, what's scary is... To me, what's scary is what you don't see. You know, it's like just show just enough. And, and so my philosophy was to let's light that as little as possible and suggest how goddamn creepy it is. But they're like, right. oh, no, we paid a lot of money for this. We want to see it. It's like, oh, you want, you want to see that? Okay. Right. <laughs> so, well, you know, you know it's interesting. When you, look at the, when, when you look at Batman, the first Christopher Nolan, you know, adaptation, I, it was really you didn't really see Batman to a certain extent. You saw through the criminal's eyes. So it was a mystery yeah. where it, the character was really held back and hidden just the way you're, you're talking about. So, yeah. you know, even though he was a very like low key director, like low fi director, yeah. he really influenced a lot of people. I think, I think, look, I'm working on a music video right now for a friend that's got this moment that we were trying to define, um, where it's important for people to understand that a character died. And the way we did that is, is towards the end, our, our first person that the story is told through their eyes, we kind of intimate that they've passed away and somebody picks up a paper and sets it on a mantle. And there's a photo of this other person younger at the same age they are in these flashbacks. And I was going, Oh, how do we, how do we make it people know that they died? And, Folks are saying, oh, put RIP and put a date and put candles. I'm like, no, I don't want to ever do anything obvious. So I kept thinking about, oh, we could do this, we could do that. And then suddenly I realized all we need is that picture showing that she's never aged. That's the only picture of her. And yes, it's ambiguous. Yes, it's ambiguous. Yes, they may not get my meaning, 
But even more importantly, they're going to attribute their meaning. And, and suddenly it all came into clarity. And, and, but just as a general thing, be it alien, be it um, you know, that music video, be it any story, I think you need at least a little ambiguity for people to own those characters and moments and circumstances. Because right. if you make it too you know, particular Obvious. about your – it's like writing a song with a person's name in it. Everybody right. who doesn't have that name is not going to have the same identification, and I think that, that that's just important for a good story is to let people be able to see themselves and to identify and care. And it's just I think what you're, I think what you're talking about is not, not thinking of the audience as being stupid, as thinking of the audience as being intelligent and not sugar-feeding them. Am I right? Um, honestly, not on a, on a fundamental level. There are absolutely right. there are applications of that where you don't want to just spell it out. Like you know, when I said I don't want to put RIP in the date, that is absolutely what you're talking about. But I'm talking about something a little more primal. I'm talking about like with the alien in the first Alien movie. You only right. see a, the full figure briefly, and for the most part, it's bits and pieces. So what happens in people's minds? They fill in those blanks with what scares them most, not what scares Giger most, not what scares Ridley Scott most, but what scares the living shit out of them, and that's what I mean. That's, so that's, it's not even intellectual. It's primal. Um, you know, just the same with, with, it's with a love song. If, if the love song has a name, you're like, oh, you know, Betty Sue, great, whatever. But if it has no name, then you're thinking about your true love. You're thinking about the person you lost, and… And that's what I mean in, in, in all forms of storytelling is to have, have those hooks, have those ways in you know, where, where characters are identifiable and people come to care and, and, uh, about them and what happens to them or to have right. fear. You know, it's like, again, you, 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 you're peeking your head around that dark corner. You don't know what's there, and if it's a little green goblin with a Mickey Mouse hat… The only people who are going to be scared are the people who are scared of green goblins with Mickey Mouse hats. But if it's a shadowy <laughs> figure, if it's a shadowy figure, those guys are going to be scared. The clown people are going to be scared. The xenomorph people are going to be scared because you don't know. It could be any one of those things in that shadow. Right, right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your music video you know, biography here because yeah, okay. you worked with some okay. incredible people. When you, when you Like George yeah. Michaels is – like I'm a gigantic fan of George Michael. I, I love him yeah. to death, you know, and you worked with Moby, Eminem, but you know, yeah. you yeah. worked with Lionel Richie, which is an, and Mariah Carey, Dido, by the way, White Flag is a brilliant music video. I, I love that music Thank video. That, yes. It's such a, I've watched that music video literally as much times as I've watched the dark Knight. Like seriously, uh, uh, I, I love that music video and I love that song so much. I love it. But let's. Yeah, I told. I yeah, told I love I love the song. Really? Yeah, I I use it oh, in yeah, a lot of, of my. Of course, I did. I... Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I just said. Of course, I told her I love the song. What was her reaction when you told her that? I mean, she was just very, you know, flattered and kind. I mean, look, you know. <laughs> This is another one of those things where people like to have opinions and you know talk about you know these asshole stars and asshole celebrities. But in my experience, in my entire career, that is in the exception. And I would right. say Not a lot rule. of times when that happens, but I would say a lot of times that when that happens, it's a person having a bad day. Who among us has not had that bad day that if somebody right. only saw us on that day, we would be an asshole? Um, right. 
so yeah, most people are pretty pretty goddamn chill and humble and shy and 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 really super super nice. And so she was a little yeah. sweetheart. Yeah, I, you know, I've worked on gigantic movie sets, and uh, you know, I, I've never found anybody to be rude or crude or horrible. What I did find is a lot of maybe staff to be a little bit on the crude or rude side, mostly because they think of themselves as better than they are. But the stars themselves have always had composure. They've always had like a very polite attitude and what have you. Go ahead. I, I think the irony is that the people who are difficult tend to not be the ones at the top of their game. They tend to be right. people who I think it I think maybe they're insecure or they feel threatened. I don't I don't understand it. I don't know. It's just like people who lead with fear. I don't get that. It is absolutely right. not it's antithetical to who I am. I want to inspire. I want people to feel like they're important, that they're contributing, that they matter, that I care about them and I want to be kind. You know, I never ever want to be an asshole and there are ways even with difficult situations to handle them in in an appropriate and, and a polite way that keeps the vibe on the set good and, and and you know doesn't upset people and doesn't make people feel um sure. you know like you are uh you know being a tyrant or 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 being imprudent or unkind and and that for me that's not even a reaction i mean i'm i'm glad that people are being held to account now but it's not sure. even that it really all of it comes from the fact that when i was a little kid my parents raised me with the golden rule and just be nice to people treat people well right. and i i always try and and apply that even with people who are difficult even in challenging situations and so you know, that's and, – and, of course, you know, I have my bad days and I make my mistakes. I don't suppose that I'm perfect, but, you know, in terms right. of just my intentionality, that, that's what I always aim for. Well, I want to hit, I want to hit the, the, the Moby Music video because I'm a huge fan sure. of that music video. I mean, I'm a gigantic fan. It was, first of all, a, a wonderful song. Second of all, an excellent music video. But I do want to talk about George Michael because he's he's an incredible human being, an incredible artist. Okay. You know, how did how did it yeah. feel like to work with him, and and what was that experience like? Well, you know, it was very interesting because first of all, um, you know, Joseph Kahn is a friend. Joseph is somebody who started out as, as a young guy that was referred to me by a, a friend of mine. And then he became a, a mentee of mine and I helped him out uh, getting his start. And then he went off and just, you know, blew the doors off and uh, actually turned around and, and did me the favor of bringing me into that world of music videos. And um, uh, it really, you know, at the time I was doing independent features and, uh, it was just like stepping through the looking glass into another world. And to, that was one of, gosh, probably one of among the first 10 videos I did with Joseph. And it was epic. Mm. We were on the back lot at Universal. We were borrowing wow. a lot of the aesthetic of uh, Blade Runner. I mean, it was just <laughs> on this incredible scale. But it was one of those things that we were talking about. Everybody was so nice and so right. chill and so cool. Um, I mean, George Michael was just a super mellow, awesome dude who had, had – it was, a lot of that was his idea and his vision that he got together with Joseph, and they cooked that all up. And, uh, but I just remember him being on set, being super cooperative and, and, and fun and excited. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just, a, a, just a grand experience. 
you know, to the audience that's that's listening right now, if you want to listen to a, a like literally a brilliant song by George Michael, there's a song called Mother's Child, which is based on like generational war. And and it's such yeah. a first of all, it's a wonderful album, but it's it's a such a touching song and wonderfully done by him. I know a lot of you guys out there have listened to his, like, a lot of his beach you know, shots and what have you, a lot of his pop songs and what have you, but this is something that hits you really hard. So Mother's Child is an excellent song. Please listen to it. And if you know the album, go buy the album. It's really impeccable. So you, you worked with, with, with um, Moby. I mean, it, what's interesting is that you worked with Eminem and Dido, which both of them worked together on a song as well, because he did a version yeah. of White Flag, which is very interesting to me. Yeah. So, so Eminem is a great creator. I actually didn't even but I, know that. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, they, they, um, when you look at the like, music video awards, that's when they perform together. And uh, he would rap and Dido would do her, her musical version of White Flag. Interesting. Yeah. So I, 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 would recommend, you know, I would recommend, I mean, since you work with both of them, I recommend you go listen to it after this broadcast. But yeah. it's, really a, it's really a wonderful song. And it's really odd that, well, not odd. I wouldn't say it's odd, but it's, it's very nice to know that two great artists work together. But I want to move on to right. like Mariah Carey, who's known as really the, the, really the pop queen of, of yeah. music and music videos. First of all, the music yeah. video is, is amazing. But Mariah Carey is, is, is an icon. Of course. Yeah. Well, you know, that video, I, I, I get the, I don't know. I'm not, I wasn't on the inside. I get the sense that that was like 99.9% out of Joseph's head. Sometimes these videos, like with Toxic, I know Brittany had a lot uh, to do with those ideas. But, but with, um, you know, Boy, I Need You, which was the Mariah Carey video, I think that was Joseph. Right. It, a funny thing, too, is originally we were doing a different song, and it like the last minute they swapped it. I guess it was because they wanted to have Cameron, and he's the guy who, you know, was featured in Boy, I Need You. I really don't know. I don't know why. It's just that we were prepping one right. song, and then suddenly it was another song. Um, and I think we just <laughs> did the same concept. Um, but... Uh, and significantly, Will Yoon Lee stars in that. We had just done Torque with Will, and hmm. you know, Will right now is on. Um, um, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the, the science fiction. Um, Altered Carbon, and he plays. Kobe oh Bryant. my God! What a great show He's Altered Carbon the, is. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he plays Kovacs Prime, the original uh, Kovacs, and he also yeah. is in The Good Doctor. And and Will's a, a good friend of mine. Will's a super super nice cat. And he so we we had we had Will in um, uh, Mariah's video. And the funny thing too, I don't know if you know this, but we shot part of it in Japan. We were supposed to wow. shoot all of it in Japan. We were supposed to shoot all of it in Japan, or at least at least a good chunk of it. And um, what happened was um, we were in. There were two squares, one was Shinjuku and one was Shibuya, and they're kind of like mm. Times Square in New York. Yes. And we went to one, and, and what happened is somehow people figured out we were doing a Mariah Carey video before <laughs> she even got there. It was right at the advent of camera phones, which they had and we didn't have in the U.S. yet, so we're like, what the hell are those? And, <laughs> and we got so swarmed that it was literally shoulder to shoulder, and we had to leave. And so right. whichever we were at, Shinjuku or Shibuya, we went to the other one. 
but we were stealth. We were like, we know if they know we're here, we're going to get whacked. And right. so we set up discreetly, and all we were able to shoot in, in that was there's, an inter, there's a shot in the intersection where Will leads Mariah Carey across the street, and it right. swarmed with people. I mean, we still had all those people, and we, we nabbed that shot of, of Will and Mariah walking across the street. Um, and then we just we had to go back to L.A. Uh, because of that craziness and shoot some. We shot a lot on the stage. We shot a lot. Um, we actually shot the car explosion in downtown L.A. Um, nice. You know. Well, downtown LA almost so, we could do anything. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about Japan is, you know, they they uh, they did the um, Fast and the Furious films in in or at least one of them, and uh, and yeah. uh, I believe it was Shibuya as well, or maybe it was Tokyo, and they they could not well, get Shibuya a permit because well, it is, but I, I just want to make it more basic for people to understand. So, oh, I, um, yeah, I'm half Japanese, so <laughs> I, I know the provinces oh, incredibly okay. well. But, yeah, I want to make it very general. But when the Japanese government were not allowing them to shoot the film because everybody was aware of the film, they all came out mm. in droves. So what they did yeah, was yeah. They, they, <laughs> they allowed the stunt driver to, to drive it, and they put, some, they, put somebody else in char- they put somebody else in charge so that when that person got uh-huh. arrested – the production wouldn't be shut down. That's so funny you say that because I think some of our people got arrested. I mean, I guess that's just a thing there, you know? Yeah. It's funny. It was like last night I had dinner with a director and producer friends, and they were talking about shooting in Mexico and how you kind of have to pay a little gratuities, so to speak, right. to uh, make things happen. And I, I guess that's just an idiosyncrasy of shooting in that country, just like – you know, you go to Japan, you shoot in Tokyo, and somebody's going to get arrested, so have a backup. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was really. Was I, mean, the, yeah. I thought that was really funny. Go shoot the scene, and you're going to be arrested, but we're going to we're going to pay you extra yeah. for that. Yeah. I think I think. Well, Paul McCartney. I remember Paul McCartney got arrested <laughs> in in Japan for bringing marijuana with him, and. Um, they uh, they totally shut down his visa of ever coming back to Japan, and I, I do oh, believe no. he's the yeah I do believe he's the only person that I can think of that ever got um, just pushed out of Japan and then left back in. I think it's because he's an icon and what have you, but we send I, that. Yeah, I know, but I thought that was hilarious. Like, you know, out of all the places in the world to kind of like you know bring bring in weed, it would be like Japan. It's like. Yeah, they're not. That's not going to fly with them. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're I mean, very strict. I mean, yeah, I think if you, if I was, if I was Paul McCartney, I think I'd have people, and I'd be like, all right, you know. And also, I mean, <laughs> it's like just get it there, dude. Don't put it in your luggage. I know. Well, it's not like I mean, some some so farmers so. not growing it somewhere. I'll I'll be honest with you. I mean, there are some like isolated farms out there in Japan that nobody in the world would know exists. I'm pretty sure somebody has some nuggets over there. Well, you know, one thing I would say, I mean, because, you know, you talk about Paul McCartney. I'm a huge, huge Beatles fan, and, and it is it remains a dream to do a video with him or some kind of collaboration. But, uh, you know, saw the, the Get Back thing on Disney, and, you know, just yeah. based on that and based on, on my experiences of him in the public as much as anybody. I've never had the privilege of meeting him, but um, – you know, he does he's, – he's obviously a very wise and clever and worldly person, 
But he yes. also seems to have a little bit of that 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 easygoing, um, uh, innocent uh, trust, and so maybe that's right. just what was in his head. He's like, oh, it'll be fine if they say anything. I'll be like, you know, I'll sing them, uh, you love me do, and they'll be all good. I'll sing yesterday, and they'll just woo. <laughs> He's just I don't I don't get the sense that he's malicious. He seems like a guy who's no. full of love and trust and, and you know. When you and, listen to all the when you listen to all the stories and when you listen to all the personal connections he's made with all the people. Yeah. I remember when he went to an yeah. Irish bar and, and he you can find that I believe you can find that on Conan O'Brien's show. He went to an Irish bar and was, was singing some Beatles songs and people in the audience it was a little bar. And people in the audience were yeah, just simply crying. I think crying. I saw that. Is that the one where the, where the curtains opened? Yeah, and, and he's right there. He's in a box and the curtains opened and there was a <laughs> band. Yeah, that was awesome. And that people in the audience were crying. Cool. Like, they're, they're we- openly weeping because, you know, you, you hope to yeah. God you're going to meet one of the Beatles before you die because, I mean, Paul McCartney's going to live yeah. forever, but we're not. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, certainly Keith Richards is on track. I mean... You know what they say, there's to be nuclear Armageddon, it'll be Keith Richards and the cockroach. Yeah, I'm telling you. I'm well. telling you. That, that guy's got the spice of life from Dune or something going on with his, with his blood. But yeah. let me ask you a question. So with all the, you know, like before we talk about your, 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 the projects you're working on now, because we're, we're kind of running out of time, but before we start talking about the projects you're working on now, what is the project between this p- point that we're talking about that made you feel like, you know what, I'm doing the right thing. I feel comfortable with what I'm doing. You know, I have to be honest with you. Every one of them, because it's, it's. Here's my here's here's one of my problems in life. One of my problems in life is that my passion and my hobby is the same thing as my job. So I don't have that boundary where somebody might say, "Okay, I'm going to come home, no work. I'm just going to do fun shit." Well, guess what? My work and my fun shit are the same thing. You know, and, right? <laughs> uh, and so it's like. All the time, I I basically go to sleep when I drop from exhaustion, and and I just I do I do stuff. Now it's not all film. There's there's music, there's art, there's interviews, there's networking, there's talking to Sean on the phone, cooking things up. But they're all tangentially related to the same thing. And I think most people, if they saw that, would say that's my job. I'm not doing that. I'm doing this and uh, right. So the fact that that was the case in the 90s and now and all points in between, that's what makes me know I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, and also the fact that I, you know, I have, to, I have to go through adversity to do that. I have fallow periods. I have, there are challenges involved with this lifestyle. Right. And, and the fact that I'm still good with it is like, again, that's another affirmation. Well, maybe you can tell us what, what some of those challenges are because – as a cinematographer, this is a, a special case where there's not a lot of, as far as I'm concerned, not a, not a lot of cinematographers kind of share their experiences. Maybe like on, I've never listened to a podcast with a cinematographer, so I'm, yeah. you know, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Well, I mean, so, so go ahead. I mean, the obvious, the obvious one is that you don't have a regular income, you know, and, right. and look, you could have a really big day rate. And then if you don't work for two months and then you work for a week and then you take those three months and you divide them by 40-hour weeks, you may make less than minimum wage. 
even though your your rate is is really healthy. I mean, you know, we we all all of us. I mean, it's not something we talk about. I mean, nobody wants to hang out that shingle. Hey, I haven't worked in a month because that doesn't look good. Um, right. But but confidentially, you, you, there's people that. I've even, you know, you're talking about the Beatles and, and one of my music projects. I've, I've been privileged to work with some of the, the sidemen uh, because I've reached out to some of the session players who played on some of their solo albums. And, you know, I was talking to one of them just the other day, and we were comparing notes that, you know, he's like, hey, did you make you know, a lot of money off of California Christmas? So I'm like, I'm like brother, I got, my, I got my rate. I got a thank you. I got a see you later. And, that's <laughs> and he says, same, you know, he's a session musician. And 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 that's the thing is is that you know you get paid and you're done, and um, so that's that's a challenge. I mean, another challenge is because what we do it's not just like um, you know it, it's not just service work. It's like it's it's your creativity, it's your voice, it's your vision. Um, especially if you're you know a, a key creative like a director, an editor, cinematographer, right. composer. But even if you're a PA or a grip, you know you're still putting some creativity and love into what you're doing. So we all, and you have aspirations. You know, those guys have aspirations. I have aspirations. There's, you know, there's always another mountain. And so a lot of your personal, you know, personality and identity is tied up in what you do. So to have something dismissed, for, to have something not seen, to have something not received well, to be passed over for a job, all of those, you know, you really, it's hard not to take them personally. And, you know, we always say it's not personal, it's business. Intellectually, we know it, but, you know, the heart feels what the heart feels. Right. And, and so it can be tough. It can be tough. I mean, even after all these years, I get in these moments where I'm like, oh, my God, you know, everybody hates me and I suck and I feel terrible and I <laughs> hate myself. <laughs> um, you know, so those are, those are a couple. Um, you know, it could, it could be an awful lot of work, you know, an awful – like when I was doing these interviews – I could just say no, but why are you going to do that? It's like you got to do the publicity, and that brings up another point: is I am fundamentally um, an introvert. I mean, I'm what they call a social introvert. I like having my friends around, but people I don't know. It, oh God, I'm so awkward and uncomfortable. And and I remember last year, um, you know, when I did all the publicity for California Christmas One, I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to get some job offers. I didn't, and it super bummed me out. And so there again, that's another thing. Um, but what I did get is a whole bunch of fans and groupies through these these film courage videos and this publicity. Right. I called my publicist and I said, you know, I knew I was going to have to pay a price with that publicity, but I feel like I paid the price and I didn't get the thing I paid for. <laughs> I paid right. you, I, you know, and and I've got now I've got all these people that. You know, bless them. I'm glad that I'm bringing value and all of that, but I'm just like, it, it just so freaks me out, you know, because uh, I'm just I it, maybe in a perfect world, everybody would be paying attention to the work. Hey, enjoy the work and the work great, and I'd be over on the side pretending I didn't do it, but secretly taking <laughs> satisfaction that it was loved. Because um, I'm just not that guy. You know, speaking of the music, I was talking to a friend. The guy I did the music video for his name's Randall Calcos talking to him recently and and i was we were, we were comparing our differences and i said i said i love recording i love being the mad scientist you know just working on the stuff and building it he said i don't like that i like i like performing and i said the reason i don't like performing is i don't like to be the center of attention he says i like to be the center of attention so you know there you go let the movies 
be the center of attention. Well, it's interesting that you... Go ahead. The final thing. I was going to finish my point. The final thing that I would tell you would be this, is that I always tell folks that the only constant in the film business is change. And Mm. it's so true. I mean, everything from the movies that are popular, who the players are, who, you know, hires you, the technology, the outlets. You know, in my career, we've gone from blockbuster to streaming. And so anybody who wants consistency, anyone who doesn't like change is going to have a really hard time in this business. So so that wraps up my answer to your question. Well, the Buddha would say the only constant universe is change. So I think that's exactly what you're saying there. You know, talking about the, you know, you actually really touched base on something I definitely want to discuss with you, which is you said you're an introvert, but you definitely cannot be an introvert when you're, I mean, you obviously have communication skills because you need to be able to communicate what your, what your vision is. You, you need to listen to the director, the producer, the writer and, and bring their vision to flourishion. It's very important yeah. What in what way did you find that skill, or how did you jump out of your shell of being an introvert into an extrovert in those situations? Right. Well, that's why I tell you I'm what I consider a social introvert. I'm good with people I know. If I'm around people I know, I can be the life of a party. And right. with that said, though, as I do have a battery, I have a battery that even with people I know, I get to the point where I'm depleted and I just need to retreat. But um, if I'm with people I don't know, like if I'm at a party and I have nobody there, no wingman, no, hey, you know, let's, let's hang out together, that is kryptonite to me. It is terrifying to me. Um, you know, there's people who could just go up and start striking up conversations. Oh, man, that's, that's, that's not where I shine. Um, <laughs> but look, so, so the answer to your question is this. It's part of a longer story, but... Early on, I realized that because I was being very shy. I mean, let me put it to you this way. When I was a little kid, there's a, there's a time that my mom took me to um, a 7-Eleven. And she, she would take us to a 7-Eleven, and we would go in, and she would get us a Slurpee. Well, there's one time she took us, and we were sitting in the back seat, and she says, okay, go get your Slurpee. Here's the money. And I just stood, sat there and cried. I was way too terrified to go in there by myself. Wow. So that was my starting point as a little kid. You know, I got better, but it, again, it was always about you get to the point where you feel comfortable with people and you like people. And um, and again, with creative people, they've always kind of been my tribe. Like when I went to high school for performing and visual arts, I just kind of got along with everybody. They were, you know, we were all kind of cut from the same cloth. Hmm. And so there was just that natural sort of a, a chemistry. But out in out in the big bad world, it's a different sort of thing. And um, but it became apparent to me very quickly that I was playing very small. I was playing way too safe, way too hmm. wimpy. And I just – I had to get out there and get – you had to make friends. You had to – this is a business where people hire the people they know and like. And I had to get out there and put in some FaceTime. And uh, I had to right. make the decision that I was not going to – you know, that, that this was more important to me than my shyness. It's like, yes – I'm shy and I'm scared, but I want this more, so I'm going to have to figure it out. Right. Pretty much what that looks like is acting. I pretend. I pretend that I'm not shy. And the good thing is, is you kind of get into a place and you kind of – it starts gelling, and then you, you sort of forget that you're acting and people like you, and then it, the ease comes. Um, 
but uh, you know, on movie sets, it's you know, it's a little family. It's like summer camp, and so you do get into the zone where you love everybody and everybody loves you. And like I said, with my high school, it's it's a bunch of creative folks, and so you just kind of find that zone. So that's pretty easy. Um, you know, I, I hope I hope I answered your question. No, you did. You're actually leading me to my next yeah. question because you know you're, you're okay. You're talking about people you know and people you're talking to and communication, communication yeah. and what have you. When was the first time you met Sean Piccinino and you started your collaboration together? It's wonderful you asked that because just last night I told you I was having dinner with friends. One of those friends was producer Noel Vega. Oh, Noel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know Noel, okay? So of course, um, I had done, I had done a movie with Noel in 2011, and um, very ironically, it had been a Craigslist ad, which was strange because most of those are are crap. <laughs> but um, you know, at the time, I was looking to fill in some holes, and um, when I say that, it's it's not that I got great returns; it's just that I was that persistent. Right. And um, anyway, I just struck the struck the lottery with that. And then we stayed in touch for, gosh, it was probably six years of just, hey, I like Noel. Let's stay in touch with Noel. And I, well, there was nothing cynical about it. It was nothing about, oh, he didn't give me any job. Screw him. You know, I just liked him. And, and I try to find that with people. I try to, you know, if you're going to be in the business, you may as well be around people who are cool and that you like them, whether you work with them or not. And and I would just never, ever want to be that. I've just never been that person who looks around trying to use people in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I hope and trust that the universe is going to be, you know, bring people who want to be my friends and want to give me opportunities, but I'm not going to be the one to impose that as a condition on people because right. it doesn't feel right. So we, we stayed in touch and we were friends. And um, interestingly enough, one day we uh, I was trying to help out another friend who wanted to – learn producing and I said oh you should have a mentor let's go have lunch with Noel so we went to Noel's favorite Indian restaurant over in uh, uh, Encino and we had a nice day uh, me thinking I was helping out my friend but then the next month or a couple weeks later Noel calls hey I'm going to put you up for this uh, World War II movie and I'm like all right that sounds great I would love to do a World War II movie oh, Dugan Churros, yeah. period pieces yeah and uh, turned out to be a guy named Sean Piccinino and I went in and I interviewed with him, and there were two producers there, Ian Wang and uh, Leon Chow. Right. And it just went swimmingly. I mean, I mean, it was so funny. You, you know Sean, so it's, it's not yeah. going to surprise you when I say the chemistry was immediately there. It's like we've known each other for 20 years. Right. Um, you know, in that, first, in that first meeting, we spoke the same language and we had the same visions. And, you know, uh, I mean, at this point, I feel more like he's a brother to me because we – just get along so well, and we have so many common interests, not just filmmaking, but music. I mean, you know, we've played a lot of music together. Um, mm. You know, we love a lot of the same kinds of, you know, like like the Beatles documentary or science fiction movies or comic books or right. just on and on and on and on and on. There's so many intersections. And, you know, to step away from Sean just a moment and, and say that I think that's really what you want in collaborators. And that's one of the beautiful things about this business, because as much as it does suck that you don't have a constant job, it, you're, you're always cycling in and out of stuff. And so you're meeting all of these different people 
And, you know, you can choose, like with Noel, I'm going to invest time in this guy. He's a cool guy. I like him. I'm going to invest time in Sean. It's like, oh, here's another dude. Maybe the chemistry's not there. I'm not going to hate on him, but I'm also not going to call him up to go have a beer. I'll call Sean up to go have a beer. And, And so... You know, you build those bridges. You build those bridges where you find your people, and and Sean is right. most definitely my people. Right. So you did you did Duke and Heroes with with a you know with a lot of people that we know. You went off. Did yep. you, were you one of the crew that went off to China? I'm, I'm pretty sure you were, right? I did. Nice. Yep, was now, how was that experience like? It, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of the footage, and it it really looks beautiful. You know, Sean was very disappointed that it hasn't been released yet, but uh, it looks beautiful. It's gotten caught up in some of the politics between China and the U.S. because it was a Chinese co-production. So it's right. very heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm super proud of it. I mean, we worked with amazing people, such good friends, Casper Van Dien, Shane Graham. I mean, just love these people to death. Again, that whole group feels like family to me, and I, and I love them so much. And going to China was what a privilege, you know, what a treat, Um you know, again, just last night we were talking about, about that trip, and um, I'm a vegetarian. It was quite culture shock because here in the U.S., you go to a Chinese restaurant, getting something vegetarian is very, very easy. My aunt, um, who is from Hong Kong, and also Amy, not Amy, um, Joy, who is uh, one of the producers and also Noel's wife, um, both of them said, yeah, you're, you're not going to have any luck finding vegetarian food in China. And <laughs> sure enough, man – if I if I didn't have uh, somebody who spoke Mandarin with me to tell them right. to make me something, I couldn't eat. I couldn't. I couldn't. You'd be you'd be dead right now. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't be dead, but it would have been. You know, <laughs> we weren't there that long, but I would have. I would have been in bad shape. But um, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was a challenge. But gosh, it was amazing. You know, and you know, with the exception of Japan and Thailand. Every country I've ever been to, and this is another benefit of this business. I've been to a lot of them on jobs, um, but they all use the Latin alphabet. And so, you know, whether it's Brazil or Colombia or Australia or um, the Philippines or Canada or whatever, even if you don't speak the language, you, you look. It's like, oh, there's a word. I can sort of figure it out. And and also, even if you don't speak Portuguese or or Spanish. There's enough, or French, there's enough of those words that infiltrate into the English language that you're going to pick up on this, that, and the other thing. But when you go to China, man, it's like you may as well be on an alien planet because I didn't understand a thing. And the uh, the characters, you don't recognize the characters. Right. And um, even the way that they speak, the tonalities, they're not Western tonalities. And so like like if somebody told me how to say a Portuguese word, I could say it. You know, but I struggled with Chinese words because there are nuances in the pronunciation that it's just so easy to get wrong. If, if that's you know, not that's the a, culture, that's that interesting you that you're saying that because you know, to me, uh, Cantonese and Mandarin are very easy to me, are, are really easy. But Portuguese, Portuguese is hmm. like an alien language. I remember I was in wow. South America and someone was speaking Portuguese, and I walked up to them like, "What? What language are you speaking?" And they're like, I, I it's Portuguese. It. It's like, it's like the, yeah. It's like it's got the best aesthetic qualities of Spanish and French combined. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a it beautiful, is. beautiful language. 
It's a beautiful language, but it is it is something my ear for some reason does not pick up well. Wow. So in China, you had a great time. You were in, you were in Hong Kong. You know, you you obviously got fed. No, no, no. We were in got... Hong Kong. Oh, you're mainland China, right? Kong, yeah, we were we were mostly in um, in Ningbo and Shipu, and yeah. and a little bit in Shanghai, but that was it. That's nice. Yeah, Sean would uh, text me over. Uh, pictures of him on the Great Wall and what have you. Was, those were hilarious. Uh, that was a great cast, great film, you know, great cinematography. You did a great, an excellent job on that film. Thank you. Yeah, I really love that. Thank you. Uh, you know, after you were finished with that, you, you moved on. And what was the next film you worked on? Was it California Christmas that you worked on with Sean after that? Um, or was it Salvage no, Marines? No, the next thing it was Salvage Marines, which is another thing that's caught up hmm. in who knows what. But that was a sci-fi series that we shot in Louisiana, and I met another new friend through Shauna, producer named um, Jamie Thompson, who uh, lives in Houston, my hometown. Super, super oh. nice guy, and he he brought me on to shoot part of Jeepers Creepers. And, oh, nice. You know, that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jamie's super awesome, and and again, we had a lot of the same faces from Doolittle. We had um, you know Casper and Shane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of those guys, even some of the same crew. So, hmm. um, you know, it was just really fantastic. Well, Sean likes to keep, the, you know, like a family together. And, you know, Shane Grandma is quite a character. I've, I've worked with Shane, you know, several times before and done photography yeah. for, for him for, you know, several times. He's really a, a great human being. Um, so let's, let's go back to Jeepers Creepers real fast. Are you talking about the original Jeepers Creepers or like the sequel? Gosh, no. No, no. I'm talking about something we shot last um, October, October t- 2020. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, did the um, um, I did the first 10 minutes of it in Baton Rouge. I was supposed to shoot – I'm not going to – maybe I shouldn't say I was supposed to, but I, they had talked to me about shooting the whole thing. But that got torpedoed because of COVID and the fact that it was going to be difficult to get me to England where they were shooting it. So right. unfortunately, you know, no, I don't know, I don't know what the likelihood of that actually materializing would have been, but the conversation just never went anywhere because it just wasn't practical, and it broke my heart. I would have loved to have been part of that, right. and you know, we had Timo right. was our director, and he was just absolutely fantastic, and I really got along with him. I would have loved to have worked with him, and of course, Jamie as well. Um, but the little bit that we did that first ten minutes. Um, you know that was just uh, this this wonderful Baton Rouge crew that we had shot out in in Jackson, Jackson, Louisiana. It's amazing how many productions get started, and how them watch themselves through flourishing. It's amazing, especially now with streaming and you know you have every single service on the planet Earth. It's it's amazing how many projects start, and how many find mm-hmm. the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's, let's talk you know, about uh, California Christmas because that was a that was a really great film. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it really had really the nice. First one or the recent one? The, the first, let's talk about the first one. So yeah, because okay. California Christmas City Lights is the sequel. So uh, California yeah. Christmas, you worked on that film. Um, yes, sir. I so, well, yeah. What was it like working on that set? Because first of all, great actors. Uh, a really, yeah. a, you know, really nice script, uh, some, some really nice cinematography. It was really, I mean, you really, you had some of the, some of the great vistas out there. I mean, some beautiful scenery yeah. out there. 
Yeah. Right. So, well, first of all, it had always been on my bucket list to do a Christmas movie. I mean, that was always like, you know, I wanted to do a Christmas movie and a Western and some historical pieces and some space-based sci-fi. So to check that box off was a thrill, and I humbly checked it off, assuming it was going to be, you know, just one of the faceless crowd of Christmas movies that year. So it was an exquisite surprise when it pulled ahead of the pack and distinguished itself. Um, just a thrill and, a, and an honor. Um, it was number one for quite a long of, time. Yeah. In ter- and, it, and it was number, gosh, I want to say it was number 14 for the entire year. It was in release for two weeks, and it was number 14 for the entire year. That's just mind-boggling. Um, but in terms of anticipating the job, you know, there were several elements. One of them is the fact that my buddy Brett, who I had known since my Concord days, was the editor. And through him and uh, you know, some of his, our social circles, I already knew a lot of these people. You know, I knew I – knew, obviously, I'd worked with Sean before. I knew the composer Jamie because you know, we would all socialize. Um, I, knew, I knew some of the other folks, um, Stuart Davis, uh, production uh, manager. He and I had worked together before, and um, – you know, so so all of all of these folks, and I had also because of because of Brett, I was on um, um, even before I met Sean, I was on uh, uh, an invitation list for test screenings, and I would go to their test screenings. And the first one I saw was Pray for Rain, and I remember I was so impressed, and it was kind of a very different movie. It was very well done, and a lot of times these lower budget films or these lower budget film companies they make. You know, very, very cliche, very right. kind of formulaic in a in a not good way kind of movies, and and you know, not not good production values, not good acting, but it was really extraordinarily well done, and everybody was so nice. The owner of the company, Ali Afshar, was very friendly, and like I remember, I would go and I would give my opinion like everybody else, and they were just warm and cool and chill, and nobody was weird, and you know, all the other people that they had there, I remember specifically Christine Moore, who's one of their producers. She acts in the movies. She, Christine you know, Moore's her husband, John Duke. Yes. Pardon? Christine Moore's excellent. Yes, yes. And John Ducey, her husband, who writes a lot of the movies. Right. So they were all Fantastic. all of these folks that I kind of fell in with, and I just really liked them all. And I mean, you know, they had some go-to people, so I didn't know that I'd ever get a chance. But I was just, it was a thrill to to know them and to be in that circle. And um, then, you know, when the first California Christmas came around, um, you know, there was some availability questions, and they reached out to me because Sean recommended me, and I'm like, hey, I would love to do it. And and I I did it and uh, you know we were right there in the heart of COVID. In fact, we were one of the first films back up. I remember my agent Michael Kirshner at APA was saying to me, he says you are the only client I have working. He says you have the <laughs> only job that's going on. This was like June of 2020, and and it was so early that there were no standardized COVID protocols, and so our you know, one of our producers, Daniel Aspromonte, was he was calling around. He was talking to SAG. He was talking to, you know, whoever, uh, you know, the the, the the agents and all, um, and just saying, what do we do? How do we make everybody safe? And um, so there was negotiations as to what that was going to look like. And right. um, 
and and even when we started, God, I remember the first they wanted us to do blood tests, and it just made me want to cry because I hate that. But I'm like, I got to do this movie. <laughs> I guess I'm going to suffer. Um, thank God that went away. That went away very right. quick. Um, right. We did the nose swabs, and I think they also started testing us. I think we tested a lot more frequently on that than than what ended up coming down as the standardized protocols. But it was the wild west, and you know, a lot of the things that are in place, we had early versions of that. Like, like I remember they said that if, if you're going to come into set and tweak lights, all the actors have to leave. And, right. and so we found workarounds, like with wireless lights. And, uh, um, you know, we just tried – we tried to light from outside the house wherever possible or outside the location. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was a new way of working. And we – gosh, I think – I want to say we only had 14 days to shoot it. So we were ripping, and we had a very – we had a, a smaller crew than usual, again, because of the COVID protocols. They're like, you can only have so many people. And, uh, you know, what? we found a way to make it work. We had the right people. Everybody had the right, right attitude. Sean is an amazing, amazing leader, as are Daniel and Allie. I mean, those people just inspire, you know, they, you, would, you would cross the Sahara for them. And, um, right. and you know, I, hopefully I contributed to that. And, and it's just, again, everybody is really the right <laughs> Well, well, what's interesting, what's interesting about that film is, is you know, it, it does follow. A, you know, Sean and I were talking yesterday, and what's interesting about the film is it does follow a formula. But I, I would, yeah, yeah. I was arguing the same thing that minestrone soup follows yeah. a formula, and you can go to any yeah. restaurant, any home, and that minestrone soup could be crap, like just total crap. Yeah. And you wonder how can somebody ruin mm-hmm. this? And you go somewhere else, and that minestrone soup just exceeds any expectation yeah. you ever have. So, you know, that's what California Christmas was. You know, and what's interesting about the film is that it hits such a large audience. I mean, it did help that it was released close to Christmas and what have you. But people wouldn't continually right. watch the film if it wasn't good. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I attribute a whole lot of that to the actors. Because, because those actors, and I obviously I mean Josh and Lauren and Amanda Detmer and David Del Rio and, and Natalie Mann. But I mean... All the way up and down, every single one of them, you know, they are, you know, Gunner is amazing, um, Caitlin is, is amazing, all of those people. I mean, it was just one of the things that was so brilliant when the first one came out. I mean, of course people are going to love Callie and Joseph, but, you know, there were the Manny and Leo fans. There were the people rooting for Gunner. There were, you know, it was just fantastic that everybody had a little – it was like the Beatles. Everybody's got a fan base. and. Right. You know, as we're sitting there on the set, you know, it is just so natural for us to say, oh, my God, we should spin these characters off. We should do, you know, Manny and Leo take Vegas. We should do, you know, Gunner and Liz <laughs> European vacation because the characters are so rich and, and the actors just, you know, we should do like a, a celestial series with Amanda Detmer in heaven, you know, telling God what's what. It's, it just – the shit just writes itself. And, right. um, and I think that's where the magic lies. And it, and it is, I think it's a, it, it may, it may proceed from a formula, but there's so much heart and realness and love and dimension in Lauren's script. I mean, that's true. Cause I read a lot of scripts and her right. scripts just, it's like they're, they just glow right off the page and they go right into your heart. And, uh, you know, I haven't given much thought as to what, you know, specifically that difference is but i'm sure you know she 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 provides 
a an armature for the soul of those characters, and then they right. just just found the right actors to to put the flesh on it. And then you know, Sean and I do what we do. But if all those pieces weren't there, it would be a well shot, beautifully lit, hollow husk. <laughs> <laughs> a hot mess, as we would say. Now we're, we're quickly we're quickly running out of time, uh, but yeah, I want to talk about uh, you know the sequel, uh, you know uh, yeah. California Christmas City Lights. So you have the expectation of a sequel. You know we all know the sophomore slump. We all know that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of sophomore you know films do not do well. Of course there are, there are exceptions right, like right. The Temple of Doom right. and Empire and a lot of other great films. And I, I think that Alien. adage is Aliens. Aliens. Oh, Aliens was brilliant. Empire. I do I do think that adage is kind of like losing its context. But yeah. you know, knowing the success of this film now, how did you feel going into this film prior to that? I I had faith, you know. I have faith in every single one of these people. And 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 look, if any one of us had had a you know a moment where we weren't at our A game, I know we would have gently been lifted up by the people around us, you know. So like if Lauren needed some help with the script, or if Sean you know was lost in a moment, or if I thought I don't know what to do, you know. I mean, we have enough redundancy. Like Sean. If I fell over dead on the set, you know, Sean could get it done. You know, I mean, he knows right. shit done about cameras, and um, so it's just nice that we have that reciprocity. And 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 there's absolutely no ego. It's like it's like I mean, there's no oh, I told you that idea. You better give me credit. No, it's like screw that, man. One all for one and one for all, and we're just making something cool and having a good time. And um, because of that, you know, because it's just such a strong, strong team. I had faith and I trust these people because I've seen, I have never seen a bad ESX film ever. It's like, the, you know, there's some I like better than others, but they're all so incredibly well made and so full right. of heart. And um, so I just had faith. And the other thing is once I knew what the idea was and I had some, some intuition, I just, it was so smart because, um, you know, so much of the time, I think the reasons that, that, um, sequels fail is because they try to retell the original story and you know there's a little bit of this where you might feel that way and then it just takes a turn and you're like oh, what and uh, right. so you know lauren was very very smart in the way that she wrote this and the way that she developed it because there's a whole lot of stuff that people don't see coming you know right. she did not she did not retread the formula and i will tell you i hope we get a 3 because i already have a sense of what that's going to be and it's a whole right. other direction and i mean that's nice. the way i think you keep these things fresh is you have these bloody amazing characters written extremely well and and you put them in cool and new situations where you're not you know boring people to death now when you when you did a california christmas the the first version and you shot that yeah. film. Did you go yeah. into number two with a different attitude or a different perspective of how you wanted to shoot this film based on how you saw well, the first one? The only real difference was that Sean wanted it a little more romantic, and so we added some diffusion that we didn't have in the first one. Mm -hmm. um, by virtue of the fact that it's in San Francisco, it's different. And I will say, you touched earlier on the vistas in Petaluma, and that is a conscious decision. I mean, Sean and I, some of that B-roll we shot on our days off because we didn't want to be pressured. And um, 
But we were always conscious in our lens choices, in our framing choices. It's like show off these spaces, show off the mm-hmm. exterior of Petaluma, show off the interior of the house, show off San Francisco. I mean, you don't – like there's a shot on Lombard Street, the zig- zigzaggy street, and, and we were going to shoot it from the ground. And I'm standing there, and I'm going, I don't see the street. Uh, I'm like, Sean, we've got to do this with a drone. And so we had that drone that, that booms down that gloriously features that street, and, and that's just what it's always about. When we were in the ballroom of the, of the Fairmont, I said, man, we should fly a drone. Let's see if we can get permission to fly a drone in here because we have got to show off this space. And um, so that's always conscious. You know, it's conscious with Sean. It's conscious with me that you know, we, want, we want to give a sense of place. And right. uh, so, you know, there was that difference as well. But at, at the same time, you want a little bit of continuity. I mean, you don't want it to be suddenly now you're in a completely different different world and it doesn't feel like the same movie. Um, and then just in terms of the vibe, I remember standing on set the first day and I was like, I was like, my God, I feel like we didn't even leave. We took a couple of weeks off and we're back, you know, just continuing the story. I mean, all the familiar faces, except Natalie, who was like half again taller on like I'm like are you Natalie's sister oh my god you know so that was that was certainly uh, an interesting experience right well so so you know as we as we close out here you know I have several questions but you know we're just running straight out of time but you you, you did say your parents passed away and I do want to ask you a personal question was there a time where you were able to express to your parents what you were doing how you felt, and, and how did they feel about that? Oh, continually from the outset. I, I mean, remember, to, in my brain, all of this is an arc that begins when I picked up a crayon as a kid. Uh, there's not really a – it's like it's everything dovetailed. And so this is a conversation that went on my entire life, and they encouraged me. Um, you know, my parents, if I had wanted to be a doctor or a football player or – probably not a drug dealer, but almost anything else, they would have encouraged me. They were those kind of parents. You know, you can do anything. And, um, right. you know, and I, you know, I had my parents both until I was fairly, fairly mature. I mean, my mom passed away in 2011 and my dad in 2018. So, you know, I knew them as an adult. And, and of course, when I lived in Los Angeles, every single year I came home for Christmas. I did not miss a Christmas in 30 years. And, um, would come home at other times, and sometimes I would do movies in Houston. And uh, so they knew, and, you know, we were explicit with each other. And so uh, that is one of the things that I would say to people is, like, you know, I think one of the reasons – I mean, I miss them. I'm sad. I grieve them, but I don't have regret because, you know, there was nothing – you know, there was nothing incomplete with us. And so I guess, you know, for people who, who wonder about that to the extent that you are able – you know, don't leave anything unsaid and don't leave, you know, just express how much you care about them. Don't think, oh, I should call them. I'll call them tomorrow. No, stop right now and call them. You know, I would do that. Like I would just spontaneously on set. Hey, Dad, how you doing? You know, driving in the car. I would talk to them like probably every day, you know. Right. And, uh, right. and so, well, yeah. Go, going, going is, you know, let's, let's put a little hypothetical out there. There's a kid in Texas, Houston maybe, maybe Dallas that is looking at your career right now and says, you know, I want to do that. I want to be that person. What, what advice would you yeah. give that person? 
Well, as this is a whole whole separate episode, first of all, I would say go watch my Film Courage interviews and read some of my articles because, you know, I did find in giving people advice, I would say the same things over and over and over again. And um, so, so there's that. I mean, but, but I know you want a specific answer. And, and one of the things I would say is there is no one path. There is no right way. You know, there's no one way to do it. Everybody wants the formula. Everybody wants the roadmap. And it just doesn't exist because... Well, let's put, let's put it another way. You're, you're, you're on set for 18 hours with people, you know, and that's yeah. really difficult. Why do people want to spend 18 hours with you? Let's put it that way. Well, I, I don't think that's why they're there. I think they're getting a paycheck and they're getting to do their own... Yeah, you know, but they, they, they can thing. replace you. I mean, we both know they can replace oh, you're you. Talking about, if they don't like you, they, they can find somebody else. If you're a pain in the ass, you're gone. Yeah, I mean, you're, eight, you're there you're for 18 hours. And pe- yeah, they, they're enjoying well, you. They're enjoying your company. Why, why is that? Well, typically I'm not there for 18 hours. Typically I'm there for 12 hours. And eight, eight, it's been a long <laughs> time since I've done 18 hours. But, right. you know, the reasons I, I get hired, I mean, bottom line is this. It's a social business. There's, there's a line. There's a saying. It's who you know. And, and we all take that for granted because we've heard it 70 billion times, but I'll tell you, tattoo it on your body and burn it into your brain because that's what it's about. People think, oh, I'll get an agent and they'll, they'll hook me up. That's not true. That's, that's a myth. That's not what agents do. Agents negotiate your deals. They don't bring you work. It may look like right. they bring you work because they're vetting the work that's coming in because they're saying, hey, I want that guy. You know, but it, the agent didn't do that. You did that. And uh, so it's all on you. It really is. It's all on you. And part of that is, is, is you have to bring value. It's, you, so many people go into situations and it's like, hey, what can they do for me? You know, how, you know, like I, I've seen people write letters and say, oh, this would be such a good opportunity for me. And I'm like, man, you're not selling yourself. They don't care. You know, how, why would it be a good opportunity for the person you want to hire you? What value do you bring? And so you just have to have that mentality, and you have to have that mentality when you're on set. And I come from an era, which I think may be a, a forgotten era, but the era of the customer is always right, and I f- apply that. I'm like, these are my bosses. These are my clients. Now, I'm not going to do anything unethical. I'm not going to do anything unsafe, but to the extent that I'm asked to do something, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. If I have a concern, if I have a different opinion, I'm going to express myself. I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to have my cover your asses. If I feel that there's a a technical thing and they want to go a direction where there's a liability, and again, not a safety liability, but just to, you know, say that we don't want to have a DIT. And I'm like, man, the DIT is your insurance that you got everything. If you don't have that person and something goes wrong, you won't find out until it's too late. And I'll put right. it in an email because if it goes sideways later, I'm like, I told you. I mean, you get to make the decision, but it's, it wasn't my idea. Um, right. But, you know, just having integrity and, and looking after people, caring about people. And you just have to remember at the end of the day, everybody's going to call the people they like. And you can meet them like I met a lot of the ESX people in social situations or at test screenings. Um, you can meet them through your peers. They can be your alumni. 
Uh, there is no one way. There's a bazillion, bazillion ways. You can meet a guy from a Craigslist job and stay in touch with him for six years, and then he invites you to interview, and you meet Sean Piccinino. Um, and it takes time. The other thing is it's not fast. I mean, it took me 10 years, 10 years of building it up before I was able to work exclusively as a cinematographer. And that's my story. Somebody else's story may be different. But, but right. those, that's, that's, that's the Well, that, that's what we're here is to find yeah. individual stories. You know, Brad mm-hmm. Russian, it's, it's, it's been really a wonderful time spending this time with you. And I really Thank appreciate you. you. I really appreciate you, sure. you know, spending time with us and taking time out of your really, really your precious life to share some of your knowledge and your, and your stories and what have you. Uh, we wish you an incredible wealth in 2022. Let me ask you, Thank how you. can people reach you if they want to reach you through social media? What are your social media contacts I, that you want people to see you? Sure. Well, um, my professional, uh, my professional uh, social media would be Instagram, and that's Brad Rushing DP. Somebody else already had Brad Rushing, so I just put a DP as in director of photography. <laughs> um, right. my, my, my most I'm most active on Facebook, which is just Brad Rushing. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, that's where I put a lot of my personal thoughts. I put some um, professional stuff there as well. And um, if you go on YouTube and you search my name, there's stuff. And if you search Brad Rushing and Film Courage, there's a whole series of super, super popular interviews. And I also want to plug my very good buddy, Sean Piccinino, and say if you put in Film Courage and Sean Piccinino, which is P-I-C-C-I-N-I-N-O, you will find a whole bunch of great interviews with him. So that's great. That would, that's where I would start. I'm, I'm in other places. You can Google me. Uh, I have a website, bradrushing.com, where you could go see some examples of my work. That's awesome. Thank you so much for, for yeah. spending time with you, or for spending time with us. And, uh, you know, everybody go watch uh, A California Christmas uh, City Lights and watch the original as well because you don't need to, of course. The second one does stand on its own. But, you know, we're very proud of you. We're very proud of your work. And thank you for spending time thank with you. us. Thank you. Well, we're clap. Real quick, mark, yeah. mark, your, mark your calendar. Sean and I have another movie coming out in spring or summer called That's Amore starring Riley Dandy, who had a bit part in California Christmas, too. That's funny, because Sean did not want to say that name out loud yesterday on air, and you just spilled the beans. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, you're going to have some kind of Marvel exec in the corner, like going to shoot you with a Peruvian dart and knock you out right now. <laughs> it was mind control. It was mind control. Sorry, it wasn't me. It was, was scroll took over my body. I, I, I love audio. I love audio broadcasting because you know, with the visual, people have a hard time, you know, saying certain things. But through this format, yeah, yeah. people have no problem saying things. Listen, yeah. I, I really appreciate your time today, and we're looking forward to that you film bet. coming this spring or summer. Uh, let's let's clap you yeah. out, my friend. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. All right. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. Yay. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a great interview. That was fun. And he gave the name of the next film, which was, which was, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a, an exec out there with a proving dart hitting him right now on the side of the neck, <laughs> which will be hilarious. You know, that was a great interview. Uh, you know, we, we often have the pleasure of talking to 
a lot of great inexperienced people out there. Uh, cinematographers are, you know, some of those people that work so much that it's very difficult to pin them down. And thank you to Brad Russian for coming out here and talking to us about film, lighting, how to get there, how you were, being an introvert to an extrovert, communication skills, making friends. It's really a wonderful journey from coming from Texas all the way to California, L.A., really, and, uh, you know, making it your own. Those are really incredible stories. And when people complain about California or L.A., I think of these stories where L.A. is kind of unforgiving. But isn't the world kind of unforgiving? And shouldn't it be? If you're not bringing your A game to the game, shouldn't you be kicked off the field? Shouldn't you not be allowed to play on the field? Obviously, Brad Russian showed you that he worked his way up that scale. He worked with some great contacts. He worked with some great people. And he built himself up. That's an incredible process. And it shows you and it makes you feel the encouragement of what next steps you need to take in order to be that person if you so wish to be. It was a really fantastic having him on. I really appreciate his time. I really appreciate his effort. And I really appreciate his articulation. To all of you out there, I really hope you had a great New Year's. I hope you really had a great holiday, beat Hanukkah, Christmas. I'm very happy to be back and, and be giving you these uh, these episodes like Brad Rushing and Sean Pagenino. We have some we have Sarah Long coming on very soon, uh, you know. And uh, you know, I'm really enjoying myself talking to these people and, and them expressing themselves and showing you how difficult it is to be who they are. But they're also going through difficulties to show you sideways ways for you to get there as well. Because their difficulties don't need to be your difficulties. Sean's difficulties don't need to be your difficulties. Now listen, are you going to have your own problems? Yes, you're going to have your own problems. But at least they're brand new problems, right? They don't have to be the same old problems of you being a pain in the butt and not understanding that you need to be likable on a 12 to 18 hour set. That you need to have a proper eye or ear really to listen, to listen to people, to care about people, to understand where they come from, to see their vision and make it come true. Those things are incredibly important. And that's what Brad Rushing brought to us. He showed you that. He told you that. It was wonderful talking about all these old movies and all these old shows. It was wonderful talking about these musicians like Dido. I love Dido. And also Eminem, who both of them worked together. That's, that's really sweet that he worked with two people that connected along that way, and he didn't even know it. Of course, how would he? He's constantly working, right? 
I thank you all for being here today. I hope you all well. You're not alone out there. If you have family right now in this time of the pandemic, hug them. Love them. Live your best life. Nothing lasts forever. Not even happiness. Be your best self. My name is Steve Pisa. This has been Cinema Files Radio. And I appreciate your time. See you next time.